Welcome to the Gender Institute Public Lecture. Um, I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to see you all braving the cold tonight. Um, this, this Gender Institute Public Lecture is, we are very fortunate to be able to say, the first of two. Um, and the second uh, of this series will, will be on Wednesday at 6.30. Um, and I will remind you of that at the end as well. Um, just to give you a kind of brief running order, Ranjana Khan will speak for about 45 minutes, uh, and then I'll open the uh, I'll open to questions. Um, there is a reception at the end as well, which I hope you'll all come to. Um, the event will be recorded, and it's hoped that uh, the podcast will be available online afterwards. I say hoped because technology being as it is, you never know. Uh, but that is the expectation um, and the hope. Um, I'd like, I'm very, very pleased to be able to uh, introduce Rajana Khanna to you. Uh, she is the Margaret Taylor Smith Director of Women's Studies and Professor in the Department of English in the Programme of Literature and Women's Studies at Duke University. Um, she works on uh, Anglo and Francophone post-colonial theory and literature, psychoanalysis and feminist theory, and she's published extremely widely, as many of you will know, on transnational feminism, psychoanalysis, autobiography, post-colonial agency, multiculturalism in an international context, um, uh, women's studies and Algerian film. Uh, she's the author of the very wonderful book, Dark Continents, Psychoanalysis and Colonialism, which, if you haven't read, I suggest you go out and buy a copy now. Um, and in 2008, uh, another book, Algeria Cuts, Women and Representation, 1830 to the Present. Her projects in progress are about the concept of asylum and on technologies of unbelonging. And it's to this first on asylum that she will speak tonight, and, uh, and to the second on um, unbelonging that she will speak on Wednesday. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for, is this working okay, you can hear me? Thanks very much for coming out on this cold evening, and um, thanks very much also to Claire um, and the Gender Institute, Claire Hemmings and the Gender Institute here at LSE for inviting me to give this talk, and also to Sadie Waring for introducing me and um, uh, chairing, chairing this, uh, this event. It's a real pleasure to be here. So um, as Sadie was saying, this talk originates in a book I've been working on called Asylum, the Concept and the Practice. And the talk I'm giving here today is one that attempts to explore what it means to analyze the concept of asylum and how to go about doing such a thing. What is distinct about a concept and how is it different from a definition and what kind of a concept is asylum? Asylum, a site of sanctuary offering apparently unconditional hospitality, even though determined by ecclesiastical, divine, and sometimes royal parameters. An institution and building for the mentally unstable, or those, those labeled thus, 
the right of a state to grant refugee status, residency, or citizenship to a persecuted foreigner, the right neither to deport nor to extradite. What kind of a concept is it? Religious, medical, political, juridical, local, global, androcentric or anthropomorphic, philosophical or anti-philosophical? And if the latter, is it a concept at all? What makes it possible to analyze conceptual links among different sites designated through the term asylum? Extending insights concerning one form of asylum's institutional setting, the mental asylum, to its most expansive version, the nation, highlights the manner in which asylums, including nations, are bound not only by borders, but also by strict rules. The space of asylum suggests the rights of institutions over living bodies, rather than the rights of citizens emerging into different spaces. My interest in asylum originates in notions of sovereignty and subjectivity in relation to security, prevention, and control on the one hand, and hospitality on the other. Asylum through figures of sovereignty and subjectivity highlights the forms through which the sovereign intervenes in lives to formulate concepts of the human and the valuable. The book begins with a simple question. What are the conceptual links, then, among the different sites? Sanctuaries, refugee camps, mental asylums, holding facilities for asylum seekers, orphanages, people, wait, people waiting to be processed, and finally the national territory designated through the term asylum. How does one think about the concept that explains or expands on something to show how it is more than a linguistic coincidence? The book proceeds in three sections, and I want to give you, try to give you a little taste at least um, of, of all three, although I'm focusing on, on asylum. The first examines how the concept and practice of asylum invoke categories of secular and religious sovereignty and the forms of violence, hospitality, and protection that accompany them. The second section considers the idea of the human is crucial, of course, for international law and human rights work, and in particular, the Kantian notion of dignity and the metaphorical structure of the as-if in the realm of the ethical. And the third section focuses on the notion of disposability and the manner in which asylum foregrounds how some subjects become waste products of modernity. Extending insights concerning, then, one form of asylum's institutional setting um, uh, demonstrates how these three, these three areas come, come to bear on each other. Asylums, as I say, have institutional rights over living bodies. Citizens do not have rights as they emerge into different spaces. Granting asylum is a state right to decide neither to thwart nor to extradite rather than a human right to resettle or take refuge then. The state's decision concerning asylum reveals it at its most sovereign, as the decision is often one about life and death. Though the mental asylum has changed dramatically over its history, we see in the process of an inmate being committed a legally binding relinquishment of rights by the inmate or by another, the committer, on the inmate's behalf. 
language of safety or security is deployed concerning violence that the inmate could do to herself in the case of a potential suicide or to another in the case of outwardly projected violence. When attempting to pre prevent violence through exercising guardianship, sovereignty is invoked and the institution arrogates familial functions to itself. Though asylum awarded through sanctuary appears to offer unconditional hospitality to fugitives in terms of immunity from state law, it is, even in canon law, conditioned by divine regulation. Today, holding facilities and prisons, like the mental asylums of the 19th century, restructure and capitalize upon the notion of safe space and alter received norms concerning the treatment of difference, the practice of hospitality, and the regulation of labor. Feminist scholarship has de demonstrated extensively the differential violence women encountered in mental asylums through the treatment of hysteria and the incarceration of non-compliant women by fathers, brothers, sons, doctors, and female family members. Also, it is not uncommon today, of course, to hear of political dis dissidents, men and women alike, being incarcerated in mental asylums. While my conceptual, conceptualization of asylum goes back to some foundational texts of asylum and sovereignty in the Western classical tradition, like Livy and Hobbes, my focus is really on the modern period. If the post-World War II period highlights the paradoxical nature of the human through the refugee, what Hannah Arendt referred to as the most symptomatic of all figures, it is because a shift is marked in relations among states and humans internationally. If political asylum was a predominantly Cold War phenomenon, and in some ways is an, is an anachronistic practice for today, even as, even, if it, even as it is the object of obsessive reporting, it also marks the period when the term asylum for institutions of the insane decreases dramatically with shifts in psychiatric practice towards more drug-based treatments. During the 1980s, many state asylums were closed down in the US and in Great Britain. The anti-psychiatry reforms from the 1950s had reached their logical conclusion in the expulsion of inmates, and this was coupled, of course, with cuts in mental health treatment in the Thatcher-Reagan years. Many were often incarcerated in prisons or made homeless, thereby creating a body of wandering vagrants or internal refugees. Who was being protected from whom and in what in these asylums until that point? Now, yet to say all this is in some ways more descriptive and associative concerning the related concepts that circulate around that of asylum rather than to answer the question of what kind of concept it is. If we are to understand a concept as a response to the Socratic question, what is an X? Then the Roman term concept may have already compromised us. Conceptual links among the sites designated by the term asylum, or indeed common sociological characteristics emerging in relation to that term, caused Irving Goffman, referring to a variety of spaces, including prisons, army training camps, naval vessels, boarding schools, monasteries, and nursing homes, to call these closed worlds to total institutions. 
they all had resembling characteristics of a type similar to St. Elizabeth's Asylum, the National Asylum for the Insane in Washington, D.C., on which he based his research. But valuable though this analysis is, it understands a concept only as a metaphor, and ultimately it seeks to think through analogy and substitution. Asylum, I hope to suggest, at least throws into question conceptual substitutability, working with and against a lexical and etymological philosophy. Asylum may be a word indeed that opens us to thinking about what a concept is. A concept is a plural within a singular, a taking together or a taking in in the Latin, rather than an individuated unique thought suggested by the Greek term idea, more of a mitzine than a dasein if we were to use the Heideggerian terms. Asylum challenges lexical conceptual thinking as it becomes tied to a language, partly because of its suggestion of a hospitality without condition and a questioning of the neutrality of the ethico-moral palette and a notion of substitutability that some may argue lies within it with its sets of rules and principles that can be applicable to any situation. It is not possible to think one without the other. It is an opening of one to the other. Perhaps that is a framework for an ethics, for hospitality, for melancholia, what we now call depression, and perhaps for concept itself. At its broadest, asylum is an opening of one to another. Even when it is a spatial term, as in a mental, as in a mental asylum, it carries the notion of an inviolable site that is retained for protection, protection within a sanctuary and a refuge from violence. Etymologically, this word, given our architectural parameters, becomes a place without condition and a dwelling without belonging. It is sacred, thus providing forgiveness for minor crimes, and non-xenophobic, thus providing a safe place for foreigners, ideally. Architecturally, it may be limited to be part of a temple setting in the Roman context, but the requirement of peace remains, and in the Greek, eisoulon means exempt from seizure or pillage. Then this notion of exemption from seizure becomes, in the modern form, an exemption from extradition, which is effectively that same thing. The etymological thus reminds us of the form of right and asi that, that asylum is. Article 14 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from 1948 reads, one, everyone has the right to seek and to enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution Two, this right may not be invoked in the case of prosecutions genuinely arising from non-political crimes or acts contrary to the purposes and principles of the United Nations. Article 14 of the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights is the only article that is immediately qualified. This qualification demonstrates quite clearly what is singular about the right to seek asylum on the declaration, and, it, and indeed what seems so anachronistic about it. There is no human right to asylum as such. There is only the right to seek asylum and to enjoy it if it is granted. 
Asylum will be considered only if the state considers endangerment in, to be caused by a form of political persecution with shifting understanding of what is meant by that term political. In other words, asylum is the right of the state and is not the right of the human. The human is, after all, only able to enjoy asylum if it has been granted in response to the seeking the asylum seeker has the right to do. In granting the right of asylum, the state is acting at its most sovereign level. If we understand sovereignty in its Hobbesian sense as the unaccountable right to decide whether someone lives or dies. The state decides whether to let live or make die, and it has affirmed its right to make an exception in its decision not to extradite the asylum seeker. The state's right of asylum prese presents its sovereignty in decisionism, and through this incarnates its political nature when it establishes its jurisdiction over people. It is indeed paradoxical that asylum has been considered such a worthy form of protection of the most vulnerable and insecure, that is, of stateless peoples of the world, whether refugees or displaced persons, when in fact the state demonstrates its own ancient and political power. It is true that refugee law can put pressure on states to the extent that they can be required to not expel a persecuted person according to laws of non-refoulement, municipal rights, and non-extradition. It is also true, however, that the state's right to grant asylum prevails over any right of a person to be granted asylum or to enjoy it. This is a suggested, then, in Article 14 itself as the right to seek prevails grammatically, legally, over any right of enjoyment. This instantiation of sovereign decisionism, even within liberal nation states, has an afterlife within the nation state itself. Hannah Arendt reminds us of the way in which the stateless person is the figure who we all have the potential to be in the modern nation state. She writes in 1951 in a footnote in the origins of totalitarianism in which she describes the decline of the nation state, quote, theoretically in the sphere of international law, it has always been true that sovereignty is nowhere more absolute than in matters of emigration, naturalization, nationality, and expulsion. But one should bear in mind that there was hardly a country left on the continent that did not pass between the two wars some new legislation which, even if it did not use this right extensively, was always phrased to, a, to allow for getting rid of a great number of its inhabitants at any opportune moment. That was one sentence. <laughs> End quote. In other words, even those who dwell, who feel indigenous, who maybe are indigenous, may be expelled, blurring the distinction between the citizen and the asylum seeker. Although the space of protection seems to hold some form of eternal sacred temporality, the term's temporal precariousness is suggested, however, by the fact that the term for the place is also descriptive of the juridical category, the jus asili. While it seemed originally to protect local criminals and slaves who sought refuge from cruel masters, it sometimes also protected warring states from plunder and pillage, a discretionary law of war then. 
It is not until some time later that a site of refuge is formulated for foreigners, as when Romulus sought to populate the city of Rome by bringing in male foreigners from elsewhere rather than local criminals. The problem then became one of concept again, conceiving and reproducing its future. Concept and asylum, taking in and taking with, travel, change form, and then reproduce, or at least seem to have the compulsion to reproduce. The term asylum as refuge immediately becomes viable at the time of reproduction, with, for example, Romulus's betrayal of the Sabines. The juridical understanding asylum provides the means to open the philosophical terms that undergirds it. A betrayal of hospitality occurs in the city of refuge at the moment then in which its reproduction is sought, and it manifests in the Roman context, it manifests itself as a rape from which is sought conceptualization and reproduction. The inviolability of space designated by asylum is then tainted, but this notion of becoming suggests a prior state of purity which does not exist. Indeed, asylum, like being itself, is always marked by sexual difference, indeed by sexual violence, its residual conceptual violence hidden, indeed sanctified, until in practice made evident. Mythical origins of cities of refuge, like Rome, that was established by Romulus by taking in, Virgil and Livy tell us, slaves and other wretched figures from the surrounding areas, could not reproduce themselves other than through acts of extraordinary violence towards women, as told in the story of the rape of the Sabine women. Livy tells us of the populating of Rome thus, quote, the city was growing by the extension of its walls in various directions, an increase due rather to the anticipation of its future population than to any present overcrowding. His next care was to secure an addition to the population the size of the city might not be a source of weakness. It had been the ancient policy of the founders of cities to get together a multitude of people of obscure and low origin, and then to spread the fiction that they were the children of the soil. In accordance with this policy, Romulus opened a place of refuge on the spot where, as you go down from the capital, you find an enclosed space between two groves a promiscuous crowd of free men and slaves, eager for chance, fled thither from the neighboring states. This was the first accession of strength to the nascent greatness of the city." Quote. The myth of indigeneity is established for the lowlifes then, and thus their secure refuge is assured. If asylum means an inviolable sanctuary for criminals and debtors, it, is also it also, however, is suggestive of the right of seizure, the discretionary counterpart to the right against seizure. Livy tells us of the violation of the laws of hospitality that are multiply evoked in the story of Rome's establishment, both of the abuse of the Sabine maidens' parents by the city of Rome when the invitation by the, Ro by the Romans to the Sabines to come to the city results in the abduction of the Sabine young women, and by the abuse of the Romans by the Sabine men, as invoked by the Sabine, now Roman, women, when retaliation is sought. 
won over by the promise that they will become mothers to free men, the Sabine maidens agree to marriage and also stave off the attack from their fathers and brothers against the Romans, imploring, if they cried, you are weary of these ties of kindred, these marriage bonds, then turn your anger upon us. It is we who are the cause of the war. It is we who have wounded and slain our husbands and fathers. Better for us to perish rather than live without one or the other of you, as widows or as orphans, taking it upon themselves to be the cause of war. These abducted women are the condition of possibility for the establishment of Rome, just as Helen was the condition of possibility for Troy's destruction. The city of refuge, then, is built upon abducted women and the violent inception of the apparent reproducibility of the population that comes with them. Other instances of the invoked law of hospitality similarly demonstrate the way in which woman herself is an anomaly for hospitality. She frequently becomes instrumentalized in the process of giving hospitality, as in the case of Lot's daughters, or she becomes excluded from the pact or secret between men, as when Theseus gives sanctuary to Oedipus on the condition that the former will not reveal the site of the latter's death. Theseus risks war in his home if it is revealed that he has given sanctuary to Oedipus, and Oedipus is able to prevent his daughters from knowing the final location of his burial. This will, of course, for Antigone, begin a perpetual form of thwarted mourning, as she is prevented from mourning her father, brother, Oedipus, and later her brother, Polynices. Having failed to stop the struggle between men for sovereignty over the state, Antigone protests in the only way she can. First, through an act of defiance against her uncle Creon by mourning the body of her brother, who has not been allowed state burial rights, and then through suicide, which in many ways is the only way to thwart the sovereign Creon's control over her life and death. Like the Sabine women, Antigone is destined to live with the knowledge of violent inception that will leave her perpetually melancholic, unable to ad adequately mourn unless she kills herself. But what use the etymological and mythical, mythical understanding of the term? Why this turning to philosophy in the Greek? In the mid-1960s, Derrida already pointed toward the importance of Levinas's, Emmanuel Levinas's labor in terms of the questioning of a logic of sameness and the one which constitutes the dominance of thinking philosophy in and through Greek. And one might indeed update this with a change in the language to German that consistently philosophically returns to the Greek. For Levinas, Hebraic thought was brought to bear on the dominance of the Greek, and thus Greek and Jew were pitted against each other. But as Derrida put it, put in, quoting James Joyce, in spite of himself, Levinas poses the question of a historical coupling between Greek and Jew. Jew-Greek is Greek-Jew. Extremes meet, quoting from Ulysses. In attempting to show how the philosophical tradition shaped by the Greek is blind to alterity in its logic of the same and finally its Hegelian totality, Derrida wrote that Levinas's thought sought to develop an ethics based on alterity, indeed an ethics of hospitality, 
that ultimately risked unwittingly replacing an ethics of totality with one of infinity, both of which shared the violence of the metaphysics of presence. To liberate, quote, to liberate itself from the Greek domination of the same and the one, other names for the light of being and phenomenon, as if from oppression itself, an oppression certainly comparable to none other in the world, an ontological and transcendental oppression, but also the origin and alibi of all oppression in the world, end quote. Levinas seeks a form of relation to alterity through the face of the other, seeking a, le a release from an ontological philosophy articulated in relation to Heidegger, and Derrida and differently Luce Rigore will show how that ethics of alterity is itself based on an androcentric metaphysics of presence, one that articulates a relation to alterity that seeks absolute otherness and yet demands some aspect of presence, a manifestation of the transcendental signified in form, in this context, through the face, or at least the visage, which I take in the French to be a little more expansive than the physical characteristics suggested in the English. Taking the emphasis of a structure of being introduces, in principle, a framework for thinking about the violence of that being that situates itself in a homeland linked etymologically to a language of the political, of dwelling, of belonging, which is nonetheless androcentric and constitutionally anthropomorphic. The relation to alterity in Levinas makes the ethical opening up of the self the putting at risk of oneself, of the priority given to the other who makes demands in principle and ethics of and, and, and makes demands in principle and ethics of hospitality and ethics of asylum. It makes of oneself a site of habitation of alterity, constitutionally formed and deformed by it. This is not an ethics that seeks rights for the other. It cannot know what the other needs or wants, or indeed should have prior to an encounter with the visage, but it also seeks some relation to a transcendental figure through that encounter. If Derrida from the mid-1960s to the time of his death in 2004 sought to develop an ethico-political with and against Levinas, it was to seek out risk in relation to an alterity without a face, without a body even, acknowledging the violation done by bodies in the moment of encounter, showing therefore the proximity between the Greek, the philosopher, and the Jew, a kind of anti-philosopher set up in opposition in Levinasian thought. And in Derrida's essay, Hospitality, he talks about the form of thinking in Levinas that ignores the fact that the Abrahamic religions also have a third, of course, Islam. One could say also to Derrida that, of course, you know, there are other ways of thinking religion beyond those Abrahamic religions that are generally named religion. I won't go into what it means to be called a religion here, but we can talk about it if you like. And yet, what does it mean to risk border and boundary with the insane, the foreign, the violating man, the beast, or the divine? It means to hold the loss of concept and concept together, to see life as disposable and not sacred or dignified, not given being through dignity or name, to be made substitutable, 
and not simultaneously, to be made substitutable and not substitutable simultaneously. Levinas gave us an understanding of the ethical relation as one that made oneself substitutable rather than making of the self someone who developed rules to live by, making others substitutable to them. This mo but this model of asylum was not without its exceptions. Indeed, Levinas, and in a different vein, Hannah Arendt also, expressed his own fear towards those masses without faces to whom he could not relate with some, without some dimension, with some dimension of height. He found a limit to his theories of unconditional hospitality, the relational human, and the crucial opening to the other with the hungry Afro-Asiatic emerging from the underdeveloped world, as he put it. Writing of the great events whose shadows were, shadow was being cast over Europe in the early part of the 20th century, he mentions, quote, the arrival on the historical scene of those Afro-Asiatic masses who are strangers to the sacred history of the Judeo-Christian world, end quote. The masses who cannot articulate their political stake as political animals, who are not accorded the singularity of the visage, who have no dignity or no name that appears to make them unique, but actually substitutable within the logic of the patrilineal proper name. In effect, those who cannot be substituted for each other as Sabine women, Lot's daughters, or Oedipus's children. So what form of the political could emerge from the lexical study of the term asylum? What form of conceptual analysis would be left with would we be left with when we have no narrative of the asylum, no secure semantics, no reconfirmation of any world we have imagined for ourselves? What life yet to come? Derrida seeks an understanding of dignity through the byproducts of exchange, and he likens this to the byproducts of language rhetoric, literature, affect, for example. He finds there the possibility of a principle of equivalence that ensures humanity of rights to justice without substitutability itself. This is the Kantian as if of humanity, to treat another as if they had that commonality. For him, there needs to be some mode of possible communality, and I take this to be related to Hannah Arendt's notion of the right to have rights. In place of dignity, however, I would like to propose a concept of disposability, which critically acknowledges a logic of the marketplace without avowing it as such. Disposability forces an understanding of how crematistics is as much reliant on the idea of disposable income as it is on the idea of disposable people. It also is necessarily a heteronomy rather than an autonomy, acknowledging the multiple names and laws that go into the constitution of any subject and the violations that go along with this. If I develop a chain in this long distance between disposable income and disposable people, it is to demonstrate a formal one. So how then could there be any guarantee of the principle of equivalence in the right to justice? It is precisely through a desubjectivation 
and a singular signature that may nonetheless be divisible into heteronomy. The moments of dissolution and displacement are crucial in thinking not only the indiv individuated subject, but also the group in post-coloniality, the sounds beyond the communicated, the not human or excess of autonomous humanity that is consistently coming undone in a melancholic manifestation. Demetaphorization would be one of the symptoms when the as-if that undergirds Kantian notions of dignity and therefore ethics disappears, when the lack of consistency from disposable income to disposable people makes it impossible to relate to another humanity as if they ever had the same right to justice. While melancholia may, in technically in, in psychoanalytic terms, may be an impoverishment of the ego libido, as Freud puts it. It is also a form of constant critical agency and establishes the subject in relation to disposability rather than dignity, an impoverishment rather than a strengthening. Justice in this regard would force an understanding of the radical disparities and complicities of the Kantian as if, that is the stuff of conceptualization, and an impossible relation to it that would be crucial in formulating an ethico-political realm beyond rights-based reinstatement of the detraumatized liberal subject. The concept of asylum then reveals itself to have always been corrupted. In many ways, the whole project performs a conceptual analysis of asylum, and yet the conceptual performance works within a framework of the metaphorical, which also involves a framework of substitutability that I am avowing and disavowing at the same time. The structure of hospitality that I derive from a Derridian reading of Levinas, with also Lucy Rigore, shows that the very structure of substitutability becomes a problem in trying to understand what kind of a demand is put on the ethical by the term asylum which is why i then find that the notion of substitute which then which i then find that the notion of substituted substitutability attacks itself it becomes bound by the structure of the proper name which is so much about a line of patrilineal descent or familial descent even in cases when it's not patrilineal descent as such it remains a binding to some kind of logic of community the structure of asylum that I see as being something to retain is one in which a notion of community begins to fall apart, which has to completely put itself at risk at every turn, which sees oneself equally as guest and, at host, as, and as host. The structures of community and of concept hold themselves together, hold themselves together through the kind of metaphoricity that I'm saying falls apart in the moments of demetaphorization, the moments in which we recognize a kind of disposability. But let me say something about what metaphor means in this context. I keep using that term, so let me just expand on that for a moment. Let me work backwards for a moment. I'm working with a concept of demetaphorization that comes from Abraham and Torek's notion of melancholia. They say that one of the symptoms, Freud writes, that one of the symptoms of melancholia um, 
uh, and Abraham and Torek endorse this, is the taking literally of everything that makes sense only figuratively. Understanding the nation state as a kind of mental asylum is a kind of demetaphorization, and the analysis of that is a kind of undoing of concept. But I'm also talking about, when I'm talking about metaphor, I'm just talking about the problem of the question of the substitutable. The framework of hospitality that does not always offer a set of rules that can be substituted no matter what circumstances or no matter what, and understanding the violence of asylum to carry within it the notion of, of a form of sexual difference that, that is taken from the mental asylum over to the state. This makes of asylum an important lever to understand the manner in which metaphor and substitutability imply a sameness that is a violation of alterity or an indifference to, a, to alterity, which is potentially wholly other. The subject of ethics is always then rewritten as the subject of undoing, the thing that becomes substitutable in the face of this alterity, but in a faceless alterity that is not bound by a metaphysics of presence. Isaac Julian's exquisite work, Western Union Small Boats, from which this image comes, exemplifies the story of migration and sovereign of migration and sovereignty, sovereign decision exquisitely. There is a moment in that three-screen installation when a woman looks out onto the Mediterranean through a gateway and she performs conceptually a rewriting of, Elizabeth, um, of John Coetzee's um, book, a, a short story um, from Elizabeth Costello at the gate, which in turn is a rewriting of Kafka's before the parable before the law, which in turn is something that gains another kind of contextual setting in the trial. Thinking about the framework of substitution that works within the parable of before the law, within ana analogical thinking, and within the metaphorical structure that I see in the Kantian concept of dignity, Kafka and Kutia examine different moments of vulnerability before the law. But in Julian's work, there is a kind of presence of disposable life, the sea, destroyed boats, human life, fish that thrusts itself onto the shores that demands some kind of response that in a sense demands a response that is outside the realm of the political ability to share language. In thinking about concept and asylum I attempt to develop an idea of a political that isn't and that doesn't demand an ability to share a language. This is thinking about more than man being a political animal then, attempting to think beyond an Aristotelian framework through understanding this life of disposability we live, otherwise than in terms of a common language or of a sense of community or an, or an ability to conceive and conceptualize, to make of the world anachronistically a border, borderless and beautiful asylum in which life gives and seeks refuge in a form of unbelonging. Thank you very much. It was an extraordinarily 
way that the question, while you're formulating questions in your minds, the way that this works is, um, can you please wait for the microphones, which will be roving around, to come to you? And can you say your name um, and where you're speaking from, if that makes sense to you, um, before you are, ask the question? Thank you. So I'll, I'll take <coughs> questions from now. Yeah, uh, my name is Dave Shepherd. Uh, I'm an individual, but I was a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain. Um, I don't know whether it's useful to perhaps suggest some discussion on, for instance, the use by the United States of a coupon system of granting asylum as opposed to other states' um, method, whether it's useful to consider United States system of making it harder for Haitians to land and be counted as asylum seekers rather than Cubans or people suffering uh, political or religious persecution however defined. Then um, I notice that even the United Nations today only about a third of the states in the world offer a universal adult franchise to their own citizens uh, let alone the question of long-settled ethnic minorities. I don't know whether that complicates the system, the, the thought. Um, should one usefully distinguish between asylum seekers and what are called economic migrants? I'm not talking about people uh, coming or trying to come be as a result of colonial history, but people facing destitution or civil war, or whatever. I was thinking in terms of questions of tax privileges and voting privileges. Americans can acquire voluntary or citizenships, and Britons another two citizenships. As it seems to me, a Palestinian hasn't got a single vote. They may have five or three votes. Uh, and finally, um, uh, Lord Denning advised against allowing wealthy people to buy up political parties, political influence. Well, Lord Ashcroft indicates the opposite, um, and Flato Sharon elsewhere also indicates the opposite. Um, do, do you think these, these topics uh, are helpful in a discussion on uh, asylum? Thank you. take a, a couple more questions together to and can we, um, can we try and keep the questions reasonably short please if there are some more or you can address that yes. question now while I'm happy to yes while, while people are thinking I'm happy to 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 address this question thank you um, very much um, for that I'm, um, let, let me hope to um, get to all your points but but anyway I will try to at least cover some um, I think that um, the, the questions that you pose are um, really important on a number of different levels. Right? I think that, for example, um, uh, the U.S. Um, making it more difficult for Asians to, um, to, to be granted asylum than Cubans is clearly a matter of... Um, of, um, of uh, um, of establishing um, uh, 
uh, an understanding of Cuba that is um, uh, an, an understanding of communism that is basically sort of left over from from the Cold War, and um, and it sort of manifests itself more now. So I mean, I think that that um, that, that certainly it, it 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 serves the U.S.'s purposes to um, to continue to grant asylum and to have then retain a notion of uh, political persecution um, by doing that and not seeing, not deliberately, in a sense, not seeing it um, in other sites. And I mean, Asian, you know, I mean, of course, depending on, on what you're meaning by Asia, I mean, if we sort of think about Asia in, in its broadest sense, then of course, you know, it doesn't, um, uh, it, in, in making um, it difficult, more and more difficult for West Asians to um, seek asylum uh, in the US, um, it, it can, um, uh, the, in particular, let's say Iraq, um, uh, people from Iraq coming into the U.S., it makes it um, easier for um, the U.S. to present itself as um, a state that has um, served in the establishment of a functioning political entity in Iraq, which is, of course, at least questionable. So that's how I would respond to that kind of, that kind of question. I think, um, for example, the question of um, the distinction between asylum seekers and economic migrants, whether there is uh, an importance in sort of um, uh, uh, speaking of a distinction there, and you know, to some extent, I think some of the other questions um, will will be addressed in what I have to say in response about this. The reason that I think it is important to maintain um, an understanding of a distinction is because when I'm trying to understand what an asylum seeker is or someone who is going into a mental asylum. I'm trying to understand um, uh, what's most explicit, if you like, about the forms of sovereign decision um, that um, are made um, on the part of institutions, whether those are mental asylums or the state. Right? So that's why it's useful in trying to understand what an asylum seeker is. As I say, you know, I think it's becoming more, of a more, more and more of an anachronistic category. Far fewer people now are seeking asylum, actually. Um, and I think that it's partly because, I mean, it's partly because of, of greater difficulties in actually being granted asylum, but it's also because of um, a larger sense of um, of disposable life. I mean, the, the, this is my understanding of it. The reason then why it's not useful to set up a distinction between asylum seeker and economic migrant to sort of tell the other side of the story is because of the sort of, I suppose, in, in, in my terms, the more utopian aspects of my talk, which would be about trying to um, understand some kind of sense of, of political solidarity um, uh, through the term disposable. So, so you know, of course, you know, if we are talking about something like the um, Declaration of Human Rights that I bring up here in relation to asylum seekers, of course, there's a whole range of um, of um, articles that have, you know, that have never really been taken into account, and those are largely the later articles in the Declaration, which are about economic rights. 
And so sort of thinking about um, the, 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 the kind of disposability that, um, that, that many people now um, obviously actually suffer. And in the part of the project that is more on disposability, I talk about um, those people who are literally kind of swept up by the machinery of, um, of, of capital um, more generally, trying to sort of think about some kind of um, relation between those people and a category of something like disposable income. For me, and, and also disposable goods, for me is a way into trying to think about um, some possibility of solidarity where we are all, we all recognize in a sense our own potential vulnerability and through that um, create some kind of sense of, of, of solidarity which, is, which makes us all both um, uh, um, uh, a site, sites of, of, of refuge but also those who seek a site of refuge, right? The guest and the host at the same time. Does that sort of address your questions? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Can, can you hear? Is this on? Yeah. yeah. Um, I uh, I really love the images that you're showing uh, at the end, and I I wanted if you could talk a little bit more about those in in terms of you know because you're proposing in a sense an, an ethics that right. moves us beyond the ability to speak the same language, which I also by which I also assume you also mean you know not having to share the same um, ethical or political structures through which right. we understand each other as well. And, I, and I, I suppose, for me, some of the, those images, they work <coughs> at a level of, of encounter that is, of course, slightly different, which is, which is affective. Right. So, so you mentioned very briefly the question of affect in, in thinking through your framework. Um, and I, I, I kept coming back, and it might be not particularly relevant, but I kept coming back to the sort of phrase, or, or thinking about you as asking us to be, in a sense, rather than... Uh, living in a world in which disposability is 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 um, routine, um, more thinking about how to be well disposed mm -hmm. towards one another in, right. in in a sense as as a kind of basis of, of being able to be moved right. by, by such kind of right. Um, well, yes. I mean, I suppose you know, in trying to sort of think about um, a form of um, of ethics or what I would you know, in, in some ways prefer to call, and this is partly with Derrida and Lucy Rigore in mind, an ethico-political. Um, uh, what, um, what I'm trying to do there is to think about a form of, um, of responsibility that isn't about having always a sort of set, set, set of rules, if you like, that, um, that, that we live by. I mean, we may have our own sets of rules, but they have to be ones that, that come apart um, uh, in the moment of encounter with, with another, right? They have to be ones that can be shaped by the demand that another, that another makes on us or something other. 
Um, and, um, you know, to some extent, putting up the images is really a sort of a foregrounding of what I'm going to do on Wednesday, which is going to be much more about um, uh, images by contemporary artists um, and the notion of unbelonging. Um, but, but what I'm trying to do in thinking about, again, that sort of category of the disposable um, uh, and disposable objects, people, um, um, things of various sorts, is try to imagine some kind of possibility of demand that is put on us all that doesn't go into simply the assertion of our own um, uh, ego ideal, if you like, and doesn't go into the assertion of the of, of a constitution of a subject and then always knows exactly how to respond. So for me, these, these images, yes, they are, um, they are effective in, in many ways and they are without narration. I mean, it's also, you know, what I'm trying to sort of think about is the, um, is the forms that are, of narration that are often required by people who seek to mark themselves as sane or as, and or as traumatized, right? Um, you know, the demand on the asylum seeker is often to narrativize a trauma, right? And make it legible. And, you know, I, I went um, a couple of years ago, this was in, in, in the US, a couple of years ago, I went to a very interesting workshop that was meant for psychiatrists um, where lawyers, asylum lawyers, came in basically to train them on how to work with people who were seeking asylum. I mean, you know, it, it was fascinating in many ways because it was, it was, um, it was about how to try to create a narrative for people who often can't, don't have a narrative, right, and are often working through um, translators who are often also not trained to deal with um, with someone who's traumatized right um, so um, so so what I was trying to sort of think about is um, is a notion of an ethico political then that doesn't demand narrative that actually has to respond in other sorts of ways and yes affective ways but not only affective ways right I mean I think that 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 that, that, that maybe the immediate response may be affective, but any kind of decision, in a sense, um, is going to be political and is going to be partly fed by all the narratives around us, right? So I don't want to sort of um, pretend that that's not there and that, that, that that's not important, right? I mean, in many ways, I'm sort of um, thinking about an argument like, can the subaltern speak? I mean, I do think it's still important that that, that you know, one understands the um, the, um, uh, um, the, the 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 necessity for that, but but really, you know, partly um, my resistance to um, a form of politics that is based on the ability to speak is is really, you know, in some ways, it's a resistance to the kind of work that has come out of a lot of the work on Hannah Arendt around. Um, around questions of, of um, stateless peoples. And it really is um, to reinstitute a form of um, 
politics that is based on Aristotle's notion of, of a community of speakers, basically. And that doesn't seem to me to be viable um, either for, um, before, for the mentally ill, um, for um, foreigners, for traumatized people, for people's, for, um, for animals, right? I mean, I'm sort of trying to think environmentally broadly as well, for rocks. So. <laughs> Thank you. This is very interesting. Um, I'm Hakan. I work at TLSE. Um, just to follow up your sort of um, answer to Claire, um, community of speakers is important, of course. But then what is the conditions of their audibility? I mean, not every speaker can be heard. Right. And also the image in that sense, it requires one to take that step to... to to hear what is being said on those pictures. Right. And I'm just curious to know what your thoughts on that are. What, sorry, I didn't... What is audibility? What is the audibility, right. Because in some ways we can, as much as we want, or we want yes. to, to speak differently. Right. But if conditions of hearing on the other side are conditioned in such a way that you are into the wall. Right, yes. Um, yes, no, th I, I, th thank, thanks for that question. I mean, I think that this is, um, yeah, it, 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 it's an interesting question. I'm, I'm reminded of, I once gave a talk, there, there's a major conference um, annually for international lawyers um, in the US, and a friend of mine who works, in, in, works on international law, let's say, um, invited me to do something um, once uh, to give a talk about um, someone I've been working on, Jamila Bupacha, who is um, um, uh, um, an Algerian, um, was called an Al a terrorist, right? Um, and um, and I gave a talk, um, and someone stood up in the audience, and they were very upset with me, and they said. Um, you know, this is this is a place where there are actually international lawyers, and you could actually talk to them in a language that they would understand, and um, they could maybe do something to improve situations. So, so I mean, which which speaks to the question of of translation um, more more generally to speaking across disciplines and across across fields of interdisciplinarity, um, that sort of thing. Um, there are a couple of things I would say to that. I mean, I think that 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 um, that's for me. It, when when I'm looking, when I'm trying to understand why asylum is the kind of thing that it is currently, or has been in the 20th century, I'm trying to understand the way in which it's sort of frequently framed as an anachronistic concept, right? that in a sense that it always seems to carry with it something that is beyond the juridical, right? That it's, that it's a timeless thing, that, it's, that it should be a beautiful thing, right? Um, and to some extent, I kind of agree with that, that, that idea that it should, should be a beautiful thing. But what I'm trying to understand is, um, is therefore, what, what that, 
has, what that means philosophically and what else it can tell us about forms of um, the, the, the juridical that have a kind of philosophical basis in, um, in something which is about a relation to another. So, I mean, what I'm ending up doing is sort of justifying what, I, what I've done here, <laughs> but, but in order to do something else. I mean, it, it, so, so partly I sort of feel like we have to actually go back to that, to, to that material and to think about different kinds of models of hospitality that have been offered um, and to also see, you know, some of the problems in those other different kinds of models of hospitality if we're going to really change something fundamentally. Now, I, um, um, what that means on a kind of um, level of, um, of translation for, for me personally, let's say, is that, um, is that I would, um, I would want to acknowledge that, that there are forms of language that are inaccessible, that they are not going to speak in representational, in, in forms of, of politics that are necessarily still understood in terms of representational um, agendas. Um, so I would want to, to, um, to definitely sort of, um, uh, um, I suppose, teach and speak um, to the simultaneously the need for translation and the need for um, a philosophical attention. I'm not sure, I, I mean I couldn't do one end of it. Now in sort of bringing images um, into play, I don't want to sort of give up on language completely and sort of say, well, you know, that lang, I mean, obviously I work in language and when I look at images, quite honestly, I read images. I'm sort of, you know, quite, even though I, I'm fairly interdisciplinary, I have quite a kind of literary um, background and I do sort of read, read things. Um, uh, so, um, but I think that what these images do is actually, and, and I would say this about much of Isaac Julian's work, is actually to rework other references a great deal, to actually sort of try to think about the references and sources of um, philosophical, literary, artistic, filmic practices that come to shape how we think, how we desire. Right, and so these images for me are packed with with all those other things, all those other kinds of references that aren't then references that lead to a sense of belonging and rootedness in a particular tradition, but actually a kind of form of citation that is about, I would say, a form of unbelonging. That's Wednesday's talk. <laughs> uh, hi, my name is Jacob. I'm a master's student with the Gender Institute. And um, I'm just trying to reconcile this sort of connection between mental asylum and then state asylum, right. um, especially in terms of the sort of the right to enjoy asylum. Right. And thinking about what types of people, what types of bodies were 
forced into mental asylum, um, and then sort of the way in which people were thought and taught and known um, because of that. And I'm not sure exactly how to think of that as something that the state would grant you that you would then enjoy. Right. Um, and then how to think about that as a way of rethinking politics and rethinking sort of a, a way to connect. Right, sure, thank you. That's, that's a, a, a great question. Um, what I'm trying to do in bringing, in bringing these things together is, um, is to think about a kind of um, pleasure and lack of enjoyment that goes on actually in both sides. I mean, of course, some people do check themselves into institutions of mental health, right, with the promise that, with the hope anyway, that there will be some kind of um, relief and release. And I don't want to romanticize mental illness or pretend that it's never never there, right? I mean, I think that, you know, no one, no one, um, you know, well, I'm not going to say no one so categorically, but the, um, because obviously there are different kinds of modes of mental illness. But a lot of people suffer greatly and would like some relief from mental illness. Um, so, so I mean, I do think that that, that the site um, of the mental asylum has offered hope for many people. And you know, in the U.S. at the moment, and I'm not sure if this is the case here at the moment, um, but I'd love to hear if it, if it is the case. There's a great deal of work going on to restore former mental asylums. Um, that were closed down. Some, you know, some of them are incredibly beautiful buildings, right? I mean, quite frightening and intimidating in many ways, but incredibly beautiful. So there's um, there's an artist who um, um, there's this. Okay, hopefully her name will come back to me. Um, there's an artist who's working in the U.S. who's been working on. Um, on old mental asylums to um, to 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 try and you know try and sort of imagine what the what the life was there with all the stories of horror and and also beauty and um, had a, a, a wonderful installation piece that included um, former inmates coming in to talk about talk about the asylum and there's really mixed feelings I mean you know the, the, there are feelings of horror but also um, but also a kind of nostalgia for the security that the asylum offered particularly in the cases of people who who really have no no place um, to hang their hat as it were right I mean it, um, so um, so so there I would sort of say that there you know that there is a kind of that there is a kind of enjoyment. Similarly, on the other side, those who seek asylum and are granted asylum are usually, for the most part, extremely grateful when they finally get it, if they have indeed been persecuted somewhere else and have, have finally got something. But at the same time, um, uh, there is um, often um, uh, something that goes along with it, which is the experience of um, of of, of risk, of lack of right, of um, of being, you know, held in um, in detention centres, um, uh, of being um, of being, you know, dehumanised in 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 various ways, um, and you know, I mean, Jacqueline Barber has done some very interesting work on um, 
children seeking asylum and um, basically looking at the way in which um, uh, um, actually in um, in human rights in asylum law that is based on human you know there are, there's a lot of immigration law that is dealing with asylum on the human rights side dealing as, uh, with asylum um, there's a way in which children for example are in many ways do not fulfill the category of human that is needed for um, for human rights law to, to come into play and so there often you see that there are actually inadequate um, you know, routinely inadequate laws and guidelines to deal with children. I mean, the UK is actually better than many many countries in in this regard, but uh, but still not still not great. And so, you know, there's 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 what I'm trying to do is sort of um, seek out the moments of enjoyment and 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 horror, I suppose, and um, in both sides. Is that That's right. I mean, I think that you know, as you say, that this question of um, of the fortuitousness um, uh, that comes out in many of those texts is really important um, too. Because, I mean, I suppose um, what I would want to um, draw from that is um, is, in a sense, the problem of. Um, the problem of, of um, thinking of dwelling as security, all right? I mean, on one level, yes, dwelling is security. On another level, and that's partly what I was trying to draw out with the, the rape of the Sabine um, women, um, in, in some ways, dwelling is also uh, um, a site itself of, of, uh, of violence, right? I mean, this, you know, the, the, the violence in the domestic, right? In the, the, 
in the in in the sense of a home and also in 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 the sense of um, in the sense of a nation. So um, I mean, I suppose you know, in that sort of opening up to risk, um, the thing that that I would, in a sense, want to draw out is is the um, is the risk that is there on on both sides, right? Um, for um, for for both the guest and the host, which is why, in a sense, uh, an asylum of unbelonging is what I'm interested in. Hello, um, Elena Villa from the Duengo Master in the Gender Institute. I wanted uh, to ask you a question about uh, how human rights, I do believe, are in crisis lately, especially for asylum seekers. And if we look at PNU and how the direct on immigration last year are uh, against, are doing, I do believe that most of the countries in the European Union are doing as much as they can to avoid the entrance of asylum seekers. If you look Italy with Libya and how Libya don't even recognize the refugee status and all the, also Spain the last year just accepted 50 asylum seekers as refugees. Um, I, I have the feeling like that the European countries are in a situation where they, they have to respect the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but in the same times, um, is that if they don't want to, and they then in a situation where they cannot, of course, say it loudly, and and how you know the European Union directives and all the, the policies are actually against right. universal human rights. Right. So. Right. Thank you for that question. Um, I mean, I think that that. Um, I think you know, the the reason why um, I mean I, I read I read the English press some and I read the uh, um, I mean I read the Guardian let's put it that way and and the Independent sometimes um, uh, and I read some of the French press as well and I think that the 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 obsessive form of reporting around asylum seekers um, even as numbers have dropped right. Um, is part of this. I mean, I think that, that culturally there is um, uh, there is there is a, a, a fear and resistance, um, and that um, basically it's become harder anyway for any anyone who's not um, uh, um, an EU citizen to move across European borders. Right. I mean, I think that that's sort of. Um, that, that's the truth of it. I mean, even if someone isn't an asylum seeker at all and has really no interest in living in um, in the state they, they wish to visit or even pass through, it's become incredibly difficult. Um, so, so I would say that. Um, so, I, I would say that the the, the basically the the um, resist. I mean, you know, international law in some ways, it's you know. Well, maybe I'm sort of exaggerating somewhat, but in some ways, it, it, it you know, it, it's, it relies, it basically relies on any kind of national law to have any any kind of 
real function, right? I mean, you know, certainly there are some international courts, as we know well, but, um, but really international law is one of these kinds of vulnerable things, and the most, um, the most, um, uh, um, the, the most kind of fortuitous circumstances foreseen for asylum seekers are those that within international law rather than in national national laws. But something else I would say is that, you know, partly, and this is, you know, the, the utopian aspect of the, that I was sort of ending with, partly that, you know, if, if, um, if funds, if capitals, capital can flow freely, I don't really see why people can't, right? Um, so, you know, um, ultimately, my, my asylum of the future, my sort of ideal asylum of the future is is one without national borders right I mean you know I do think that that um, I mean not that I'm a huge fan of, 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 of funds flowing from from one site to another either but but um, but um, uh, but if that is if that's the if that is the model um, that, that we see then I don't really see why people can't move from one site to another freely and actually I think it would lead to far less paranoia. But you see, this is partly my unbelonging desire, right? I just, I, I think that the, this, this notion of belonging that is there um, within um, so much of the philosophical underpinning of, um, of, uh, of, of notions of hospitality, dwelling, relation to the other is part of the problem. So I would, I would like to see people, things, move wherever they want, wanted to. Final, final question, um, I think, because we're well, uh, wrap up. I think your last answer seems to suggest a question of uh, a definition of nation and Presumably, you believe that there should be planning in health and education services. I don't know. Yes, I, I do believe there should be some form of um, planning for health and, and education, but I don't really see why that can't be done on different kinds of scales than national scales. I mean, I'm not, I'm not um, as against... Um, uh, I'm not, not, not um, let's see. I suppose the forms of nation state that we have currently are ones that seem somewhat debased to me, right? And, um, uh, um, and maybe some kind of utopian idea for one, for, for a world in the future um, would no doubt draw something from um, models of, of nation state that are more positive, right? Um, but um, I think I just have to leave it at that. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you all very much for, for coming and for some fantastic questions, but a very, very big thank you for Anjan Khanna for, um, for a wonderful talk and for giving us such a long time of her answers as well. Can I invite everybody to the Gender Institute for the reception for this event? And just a quick reminder that the second in this series is uh, Wednesday at 6.30, and it'll be in the Hong Kong Theatre. 
So don't come here. You won't be here. <laughs> okay, thank you very much indeed.